Well, good morning. good morning. All right, everybody's awake. What's up, bro? Just hanging out at work. So, um, thanks, man. Well, oh, you found it. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, if you happen to be new, whether you're listening online or here present, my name is Marco. I serve as the preaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen, and I uh, got a couple of things for you. Uh, number one, really glad to be worshiping alongside you this morning. Yeah, it's, this is a big deal, right? We should say that. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't sound as excited. Um, let me drink more coffee. I am really excited. Let me just say that. I'm so happy to be preaching up here. Man, thank you so much for giving me the time off. Uh, I got to uh, really sit under the preach word uh, through uh, faithful men over the last couple of weeks, and so I'm super thankful for them because not only did I get a breather from the pulpit, but I also got to uh, sit under the preach word and worship with my family, and so that was wonderful. Um, in addition to that, um, I'm just really grateful to be here. If you have a Bible with you, whether you have a hard copy or something on your phone, we're going to find ourselves this morning in 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're looking at verses 1 through 9. And so while you do that, I got a couple of things for you. The first being a, a simple apology. Apparently the AC is not working today, but you know, we're in the valley, so we're just going to rock it. The second thing is, and, and I know one of the questions might be like, does that mean you're going to go shorter in the sermon? And the answer is no. So with that being said, we're just going to really dive into our time after I give you a couple of quick announcements. Um, the first announcement is uh, we have something called discipleship groups. Discipleship groups are extensions of our missional communities. Uh, discipleship groups are smaller gatherings, about two, three, maybe four people, where you gather weekly, regularly to um, study the Bible together, confess sin to one another, and, and pray for one another. Uh, over the, the, this last couple of months, uh, we have seen discipleship groups grow within our church, and uh, they've been incredibly successful with me because it's just super small gatherings um, over the period of time that we've been in. The second announcement I have for you is, uh, if you didn't know, uh, this past week we just released our, our, our new uh, uh, podcast. It's called Native Citizens, and, and the, the goal behind Native Citizens is to equip you, uh, Storehouse McAllen, on discipleship and mission. Uh, it was one of those things that we felt that we could do very easily because we already had the equipment for it, and we just blended that into our work week, and so you can visit the website or go on Apple Podcast, subscribe, and you will find the first episode to the podcast called Native Citizens. The last announcement is really more of something that has already happened or started. Uh, in case you didn't know, here at Storehouse, we have a big population of teachers, educators, administrators, and nurses. And many of them have already gone back to the school year. Some of them have spent the last week preparing uh, their online classroom. And then there's another chunk that goes back tomorrow, beginning with online learning. And districts are working through a variety of plans and charter schools and private schools are trying to work to see what is best to fit their needs and the needs of their faculty and staff. 
with that being said, what I'd like to do right now uh, is simply pray for our teachers. That's all I want to do. I just want to pray for our teachers. Originally, I was going to have you come up, but it's kind of warm, so maybe you just stay there, uh, and let me just pray for you. I, could, I know who you are. In fact, I'm going to make it embarrassing because I want to make another, another quick note to this. If you are a teacher, could you please stand up? I know there's only a few of us, but please stand up. Yeah, big deal, big deal. And, and on top of that, we have more teachers that are listening online. Yeah, Vanessa, stand up. Like, yeah, and so uh, there are more teachers who are listening online. Y'all can go ahead and be seated. But as they stood up, here's what I want you to know. We believe here at Storehouse McCallum that you are a missionary to wherever it is you have been sent. And these teachers that just stood up, they are our local missionaries. They go back into the school system and into the school districts to disciple our children in the context of the classroom. And so what we want to do is honor them, but we, on, we also want to make much of our teachers and our educators and our nurses. And so, man, if you would just join me, I'm going to pray for them, and then we'll dive into our time a little more. Lord, you are a good father. You are a father who listens to the prayers of your children You have reconciled us to you through Jesus, your son. Father, you have adopted us into your family so that we would go from being orphans to your children. Father, you have graced us with opportunities to not only proclaim the gospel of your son, but to practice and demonstrate the gospel to those around us allowing us to introduce many to Jesus. Lord, our teachers are surrounded by children whose hearts are distant from you or simply do not know you. Lord, our teachers are more than teachers. They are good counselors. They are friends. They are parents. Lord, our brothers and sisters who are teachers are primarily children that belong to you. Lord, our teachers have the Holy Spirit residing in them. Our teachers are missionaries sent into our school districts and systems to walk out their faith in the context of the classrooms, offices, and nurses' offices. Our teachers love our children well. And so, Father, this morning we ask that you would bless our teachers, that you would protect our teachers, that you would encourage our teachers, and that you would strengthen our teachers with your grace. Father, we ask that the children entering their lives this year would be introduced to Jesus through the faithfulness of their teachers. Father, we ask that our teachers would be gracious in their speech and availability as they disciple their students. Father, would you bless our teachers as they love our children this year? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Absolutely. Well, as I mentioned, we're going to find ourselves in 2 Timothy. Uh, Again, if you just join us, we're in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 
verses 1 through 9. And uh, man, I'd like to start our time uh, by uh, addressing a TV show. Maybe you love TV, uh, or maybe you have a, a couple of shows that you dig. One of the ones I've always enjoyed is called Parks and Rec. Some of you may have watched it. Some of you may have heard of it. I love Parks and Rec. And on Parks and Rec, there are these two characters, Tom Haverford and Donna Meagle. Uh, and they have this tradition called Treat Yourself. And Treat Yourself is where once a year they would buy and blow big money on whatever it is they wanted, regardless of the cost and the necessity of whatever it is that they were buying. In fact, at one point during one of their in-show interviews, they go on to define treat yourself uh, as, uh, as a day where you pamper yourself, and they go on to list all the different kinds of things that they buy, such as fragrances and diamonds and mimosas and fine leather goods. That's how Donna says it. It's a hilarious episode consisting of loving yourself well and exercising reckless self-care. Here's my concern. My concern is that the church, the people of God, have adopted a similar culture in a variety of ways. The idea of treat yourself is to pamper yourself materialistically, emotionally, and physically. And this pattern has bled into the church among other things. Now, am I saying that buying yourself something nice is sinful? No, I'm not saying that at all. However, I am saying that as the church has adopted a culture of treat yourself, we have forfeited our holiness. We have forfeited our distinction among one another and those who do not know Jesus. Where our flesh and world tell us, treat yourself, the gospel proclaims to deny yourself. Treat yourself is about embracing your truth while denying yourself is about embracing the truth of God for you in Christ. Let me give you two brief examples. Earlier this week, uh, I saw and read a post that said, make sure that you love yourself this week. And with that post came a ton of likes by a ton of Christians, because Christians will eat the wisdom of the bumper sticker up. Now, I know what that could mean, but here's my problem with it. Many Christians will embrace a slogan or that clever hashtag or something like that. Many Christians will embrace that and they'll throw some gospel-centered language on how this could be kind of considered some gospel-centered encouragement. And I wonder, then why not just preach the gospel to yourself? Why not just be reminded of what God has done for you and as he has revealed it to you through his word and work in Christ? See, when Christians begin to adopt phrases like this or even ideologies like this, what tends to happen is that we lose holiness, we lose distinction. There is no distinction among those who do not know Jesus. Another example was on a similar phrase that uh, many, many months ago I actually got pushed back on. And the phrase was, let go and let God. 
And the pushback in the midst of this conversation was that the reason we tend to say let go and let God is that we try to use a phrase like that in order to mean, in order to mean surrender without using the language of surrender to better help people surrender without saying that they need to surrender. Why not? Why not just use the language of surrender and introduce the person to the, introduce the person to the promise of Jesus? Why do we have to be so clever, particularly when it comes to some of these phrases and ideologies and hyper-spiritualities and self-help things? Why do we have to be clever? Why do we even have to disguise ourselves in the midst of that and not just simply preach the gospel that has been revealed to us by the Holy Spirit? Why is the good news of Jesus old news? You see, the church in many ways is on the verge, if she hasn't already, of exchanging the truth about God for the lie of culture. And rather than denying herself, the church wants to treat herself. And when this starts to happen, we must beg the question of what the result is. And the result is that when we adopt other gospels and we mix them into Christian living and call it good, you and I lose distinction. And when we are called to repent, we become uh, defensive and religious Pharisees about a truth or ideology where Christ is simply not present. We become religious sinners. And so here's my main idea. Here is my argument for our time this morning. The church does not need religious sinners void of Christ, but repentant sinners found in Christ. Say that one more time. The church does not need religious sinners void of Christ, rather repentant sinners found in Christ. You see, in our time this morning, I'd like to unpack three things that God, through Paul, teaches about religious sinners. We're going to look at the cause of religious sinners, in other words, what their origin is. We're going to look at their characteristics, and then we're going to look at their conduct. Over the last several weeks, as we have examined the scriptures, particularly in 2 Timothy, we have seen the significance of discipleship, the importance of discipling one another, what it means to be a disciple, and how to guard the gospel that has been entrusted to us. And as we enter into this chapter, we need to recognize that the message of being a disciple and a discipleship or a disciple maker is the same, but the tone of the Apostle Paul now changes. And so with that being said, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9, and then I'll pray and we'll keep moving. It's going to blow my notes. Anyway. Beginning in verse 1, chapter 3. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, 
heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was those as was that of those two men. Let me pray. Lord, as your church, we are not immune to being unfaithful to you. But you are faithful to us regardless. And Lord, that is where I desire we place our hope in this morning. Your faithfulness. Lord, may we be reminded that in our sin, you sent Jesus to live among us and die for us so that we might come to know you, to be transformed by your spirit and to walk in a newness of life. Lord, this season has been and will continue to be challenging, but Christ is still on the throne, sovereign over all and at work in us calling us to repentance and leading us to worship him. So God, as we come before you this morning in worship, may we set our own agenda aside and receive the message of your gospel through your word for your glory and our good. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to begin with the cause of religious sinners. And we're going to do so by parking in verse 1. And uh, we're going to go into a little bit of verse 2. The Apostle Paul, up until now, has been walking Timothy through how to work as a disciple, how to make other disciples, and ultimately how to engage the culture that is among him. And as you read verses 1 through 9, you can get kind of an idea of something that we need to be mindful of when it comes to the culture surrounding us. That while all of these things are happening, we can reflect on our time and think all these other things are happening in our time as well where we are seeing things like uh, ethnic tensions or political affiliations that are polarized and social media fueling a variety of division and propaganda. However, here are a few things that I want you and I or that I want us to notice and realize about what Paul is saying. And we're going to do this just by looking at verse 1. So Paul says, but understand this. The reason that is important is because not only is he transitioning from talking to Timothy about the culture that he needs to engage, but he is transitioning his tone about something concerning the present. When he says understand this, this is present tense. He's saying, I need you to understand this right now, today. He is prepping him for the context of right now. And we know this because he goes on, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. 
when Paul uses the phrase last days, he is referring to the time between the first coming of Christ and the return of Christ. The time upon which you and I find ourselves in right now. So Paul isn't necessarily looking at what will happen in the future. Paul is talking about the here and now. And he says that they will have times of difficulty. The, the root meaning or the root word of difficulty in this verse is only used one other time by Christ in the Gospel of Matthew. And when we break down the word difficulty in the words of uh, John Stott, here's what he says. When Paul uses this word, <clears throat> Paul is talking about a time that will be painful and perilous hard to endure, and hard to cope with. Sounds awfully familiar. Briefly, that's the breakdown of verse 1. So in the present tense, in the present time, there will be difficult times or difficult days ahead. The question is why? He answers that for us in the beginning of verse 2. He says, for people will be lovers of self. Here's what Paul is saying. The time of difficulty will not be rooted in difficult circumstances, but in the selfish actions of sinful people. I'll say that one more time. And I'll even read it. Understand this. In the last days, there will be times of difficulty. What's the cause of those difficult times? Not circumstances, but the actions of sinful people. Now, here's the next kicker. The people to whom he is addressing is the church. That's who Paul is addressing. That's why there is a transition in his tone. He went from talking about, hey, this is how you're going to engage the culture. And so make sure that you're making disciples and make sure that you're walking and living as a disciple yourself among those that you are around. And now he's transitioning to talking about the church. Sometimes among sinful people, and in particular, those who preach a different gospel, false teachers arise. Here's what the Apostle Peter says. He says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon them swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Peter says false teachers are actually going to come out from within the church. And so when Paul says, hey, right now, in the present time, Times of difficulty are headed your way. Those times of difficulty aren't necessarily because of difficult circumstances. They are because of sinful people. And as a result, they are going to come from within the church. So the cause of religious sinners, their, their origin, if you will, are from within the church. 
And that is the cause or the origin of religious sinners. And so in verses two through five, what Paul does is he paints a picture of what their character is. In fact, he becomes so vivid about these characteristics that he lists about 19 of them. Now, here's one thing that I want to be clear about verses 2 through 5. We're going to read it. I'm not going to go one by one, but we're going to read verses 2 through 5. And one of the struggles that I think we're going to uh, hear or face is we're going to read those, that list of characteristics, and we're going to think, man, is that me? Because I struggle with pride. Am I a religious sinner? Maybe, maybe it is, but... What Paul is addressing is that these are individuals who aren't necessarily just struggling with it. These are individuals who are walking in these sins. These are individuals who have made it a habit of their lifestyle. For instance, if we fast forward to verse 5, Paul says, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. The word having, if you want to circle it or highlight it, means that they have made up their minds. These aren't just individuals who are struggling with these sins and repenting quickly and being held uh, accountable by their brothers and sisters. These are individuals who have made up their mind in saying, this is the way in which I am walking. And they are coming from within the church. And so what does Paul tell us? What does Paul tell us about these characteristics? Well, I've broken it down into three categories. Nothing special. Paul talks about them. The three categories is that these people become lovers of self, lovers of money, and lovers of pleasure. Spoken of very simply, these people are narcissistic, they're greedy, and they love to please themselves. And so I'm going to read through them briefly, parking at a couple of these characteristics. So Paul goes on and says, they will be people, will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud and arrogant. That is that they think highly of themselves and too little of others. That they become abusive. That they speak abusively to others and they demean them. That they belittle them either behind their back or straight up to their face. That they are disobedient to their parents. Parents are like, yeah, preach on that one, right? And so here's what I would say very quickly to, to the children in our in our congregation those listening when you're disobedient to your parents you preach that you love yourself more than you love them parents you could do something with that however here's what i would add <clears throat> when you disobey your parents you preach that you love yourself more than you love your parents parents it is your job to teach them what love is by being present with them. Paul continues. Ungrateful, unholy, there's that word, unholy. They have lost their distinction. They're not necessarily set apart. You can't tell, are you a Christian? Are you not a Christian? Are you of the world? Like, you can't tell. They are heartless. That is that they are without affection. Not that they lack empathy, but they they are apathetic. They simply do not care. They are unappeasable. 
that when it comes to being unappeasable, that is an individual who is unwilling to reconcile with a brother or sister. An individual who is unwilling, that's the key word there, unwilling. Not just, I'm struggling to have this conversation and I need some feedback and I need a soundboard to help me think through how I want to say it. No, you are unwilling to reconcile with a brother or a sister and you rather save yourself than the relationship. He continues, slanderous. The reason I want to park in the word slanderous is because it is similar to abusive speech where we uh, uh, speak poorly to one another or of one another to our face or behind one another's back. Now here's what's trippy about the word slanderous. The, the root word of slanderous comes out one other time in this letter and it's in chapter two and it is as Paul is talking about Satan. And so when we look at the word slanderous here, what he is saying is that these people love to do the work of Satan. So it's not just someone who is like, talk smack behind your back. No, they, they willingly want to do the work of Satan. He continues, slanderous, without self-control. That means that they are led by their sinful impulses. <clears throat> not brutal, not loving good, treacherous. Again, this word is mentioned one other time. This word is mentioned in Luke 6 as he is identifying Judas Iscariot as the traitor. So it's not just someone who's like, oh man, that's a bad person. No, they're, they're a traitor to the faith. Reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Here it is. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. These are individuals who have made up their mind. And at the end of the day, the character of a religious sinner is to make sure their appearance is one way, yet lack a heart of conviction and repentance. Jesus says it this way to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Do you know what a hypocrite is? The word comes from an actor playing a part. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. That the religious sinner wants to walk in some sort of facade that they're going to clean all this other stuff that's on the outside. And what's even more dangerous that because they are coming from within the church, they are going to use gospel-centered language and Christianese to justify how they look and how they behave and what they do. But inside, as Jesus says elsewhere in Matthew 23, they are full of dead men's bones. Elsewhere, Jesus says, it's actually not the external that defiles you. It's what's actually coming from within that defiles you. Religious sinners do everything the world does, only they hide it better with Christianese and gospel-centered language and among the church. The character of a religious sinner is one that is void of the person and promise of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, they wouldn't deny his power. That's what he says, verse five, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. What power? The power that he is talking about is certainly from the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit does 
for us through Christ is that he frees us from our bondage to sin. He frees us so that we would have uh, the, the power and ability to say no to sin. And he frees us to worship the Lord Jesus completely. Yet the religious sinner denies the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the character, or those are the characteristics of the religious sinner. So we've looked at, man, where do they come from? They come from within the church. Why? Because they become lovers of self. So there's your love yourself post. It's right there. It's verse 2a. Why will there be times of difficulty? For people will be lovers of self. So we've looked at the cause, like what uh, started everything. We've looked at their characteristics. Now let's look at their conduct. In other words, this is how they came about. This is what they're like. What is it that they do? And so Paul leads us by telling us that religious sinners do two things. And I'm going to break each one down. <clears throat> they take weak women captive and they oppose the truth of the gospel. This is beginning in verse 6. Actually, let me back up. He says one more thing. And I'll be brief about it. He says that they deny the power and they, then he goes on to say, avoid such people. Here's what he's not saying when he says that. He's like, ignore them. He's not saying to ignore them. He's not saying pretend they don't exist. He is saying that you need to be incredibly discerning about when you talk with these people. Your goal is to lead them and point them to Jesus for the purpose of repentance. This is the part where I think the church does a poor job. We will see things like avoid such people and we walk away, we excommunicate them completely. Even the language of excommunication is something specific from within the church. However, the church will interpret that and say, I want nothing to do with you ever. You're dead to me. Avoid such people means that when you encounter them, you are to preach repentance, you are to preach grace, you are to point them to Jesus. So he continues with the conduct, verse six. For among them are those who creep into the households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Here's what he wants you to know. That when it comes to religious sinners, but in particular false teachers, they are stealthy and they use cunning speech to tickle the ears of the vulnerable. How do we know? Go to the Christian book section at Barnes and Noble and you're gonna see all the self-help spirituality stuff. You're gonna see your best life now and you're gonna see it selling out constantly. How do you know? Look at the ratings of the prosperity gospel. Look at the popularity of many of those prosperity teachers. that when it comes to this look at spirituality, we talked about spirituality and even the pursuit of happiness or the pursuit of spirituality in, uh, the, in the United States. It's a billion dollar industry because everybody wants more spirituality. If I do this yoga exercise, it makes me more spiritual. 
if I do these things, then I will be happier or then I will be more enlightened. There are false teachers who will tell you that enlightenment and revelation come from within you if you just sit on a rock and meditate. However, what the truth of God says is that revelation, enlightenment is given to you through him in Christ. And so they will tickle your ears because you are vulnerable. And so Paul refers to weak women. So let me break that down. In the context that he's talking about, there's two things that I want to address. Number one, when he says that they enter the households, where am I? As he enters the households, creeping into the households and capturing weak women, on one side we have women who are married and husbands went to work, therefore they were alone at home, and so false teachers, false prophets would come around knocking at the door and saying, hey, do you have time to del- so I could tell you about whatever crap they were selling, Right? And so when it comes to that, here's what I want to say. And I'm, I'm going to start with, with husbands. And then ladies, I'm going to come to you next, okay? Husbands, you need to know your Bible so that you pray it over your wife. So that you preach the gospel of Christ to your wife so that when she has questions, you are the first and primary spiritual leader that she goes to. You need to know your Bible. There are young men who want to be discipled so that they would grow up into the way of Christ and need older men to disciple them. But older men are tired of Scripture, therefore they are not finishing well. And so we are left with this demographic of younger men who are just trying to figure it out and failing regularly. Men in particular use the language of, I'm just trying to be faithful and I don't have time. You have time. I know you have time. That might mean waking up earlier. You don't like it because it just inconveniences you. I don't know what I'm just trying to be faithful means when it is void of scripture, when it is void of a confession of sin, when it is void of repentance, when it is void of worship. Now, as I've talked to many dudes over the last couple of weeks, a lot of the guys will always say, man, so what do I need to do? Just tell me what I need to do. Some of you are really good at doing. But the majority of men, what I find, stink at worship, at being still, trusting in the Lord, and turning to him. I had one guy say, I know you say meditate, but what does that mean? It means to think. That's what it means, to think upon the things of the Lord. But it's so quiet. That's the point of silence. So wake up earlier if you need to. Pray over your wife. Preach the gospel to yourself so that you are ready in season and out of season. Here's the thing. Whether you're married or not, you need to be doing this. If you're not married, should, you should be like saturated in scripture and should the Lord bless you with a godly woman, the only thing that changes is where you place your devotional life. Doesn't mean it stops. 
We need men who are repentant. That's what defines a strong man. Repentance. I'm really sick and tired of hearing men complain. We have a man issue right now. So repent. Stop being a boy that could shave. Repent. And let's pursue Jesus. Now, the next thing, he uses the language of weak women. Ladies, he, does not, he is not talking about physical strength. Okay? He's not talking about physical strength. Even there are some ladies in our church that could whoop many of the tough guys in our church. Right? So that's, I'm not worried about that. In fact, I like to see it sometimes. Here's what he means when he says weak women. Let me, let me reread this very, very briefly. <laughs> weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning, but never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. Sisters, here's what you need to know. Whether you're married or not, okay? In fact, that's not even the point. Here's what you need to know. You need to know your theology. Right? Don't tell me nothing about how you need a man. No, you need to read your Bibles. No more self-care or self-help. Read your Bibles. Saturate yourself in the word. Come to know Jesus more by worshiping him through his word as you spend time with Jesus to be transformed by the spirit so that you would be more like Jesus. When he says that they are burdened by their sins, what he is saying is that these women are riddled by the guilt of their sins from the past. That's what makes them vulnerable. Perhaps they uh, uh, forgot the message of grace, that they have been transformed, that they belong to God in Christ. Perhaps that they forgot that they are a new creation, that they are daughters to the Father. Perhaps they forgot that and they are just riddled with the guilt of their past sins. And so as a result of them feeling guilt over their previous sins, what he goes on to say is that they are inconsistent and they waver. He says that they are always learning, but they never arrive to truth because they're just trying to latch on for something to give them value, worth, and meaning and the one who does is the one that they are not turning to. And so when it comes to false teachers, when it comes to religious sinners, they'll come knocking at that door or they'll say some ridiculous things at discipleship group or the missional community or they'll post something online that is not gospel-centered that doesn't encourage in the way of turning to Jesus. So sisters, hear me out. Please know your Bible. Read it. Be saturated with scripture. Meditate upon it. Be like the tree in Psalm 1 that is planted near a stream of water, that it's, direct, it's healthy, its spiritual health is directly impacted by the source it's coming from, and that is the water of the river that it's near. Read your Bibles. Dig into Scripture. Ask all of the questions. Meditate on two verses. Read seven chapters. Know your Bibles. So he says, for among them, those who creep in the households, capture weak women, burdened with sins, led astray, 
always learning, but never arriving to the knowledge of truth, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. So these two men, many believe, are the magicians or sorcerers that are referred to by Pharaoh in the Old Testament. Apart from 2 Timothy, we don't see their names in the Old Testament. So Paul is kind of pulling from outside of that. And he goes on to say that these men also oppose the truth. He is comparing Timothy's time to to the time of Moses where he's going on to say that, hey, the purpose of these two men was to oppose the truth of God before Moses. So just like they oppose the truth, you're going to experience people that are opposing the truth, just like you and I are going to experience people who are going to oppose the truth of God. And so when, again, when it comes to religious sinners or false teachers, uh, Paul goes on to say that they capture weak women and that they oppose the truth of the gospel, that their goal is not only to pull you away from the truth about God, but to exploit your vulnerability. And they are motivated by a corrupt mind. However, Paul says in verse nine, but they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. Here's what Paul is saying. They won't last and neither will their teaching because it's the church's job to expose them. How do we expose them? With the gospel. With the gospel of truth. Preaching repentance. Preaching Christ and Christ crucified. That's the way it's been happening for thousands of years. If we go back briefly into church history and we see all the various church creeds and confessions, the reason they were written was to establish the convictions they held as taught in Scripture against those who opposed the truth. The church has always stood firmly on that. Jesus in Matthew 16 goes on to say that not not even the gates of hell would stop the church that she will prevail. And so for thousands of years, the church has stood on ground against teaching that opposes the gospel. And none of us are blind to the false gospels being preached today. The question is whether or not we're actually opposing it or we're using kind language. I'll use it that way. We're using kind language. Well, that's your opinion, and that's great, and I understand how you got there. That's, that's good. I mean, why don't you text me a book? When are we actually going to preach the gospel? When are we actually going to act upon the beliefs that we say we believe so strongly in? That's what Paul is calling Timothy to. So, Quickly, we've looked at verses one through nine. And as I was studying, I began to think, all right, it's kind of a long Bible study in a sense. Why does this matter? When we look at the cause of religious sinners, when we look at the the characteristics and even the conduct, why does this matter? Here's why it matters. Because apart from the saving grace of Christ and the transformation of the heart by the work of the Spirit, the church will have zero distinction among those who do not know Jesus. Won't be able to tell who's a Christian and who's not, who loves Christ and who doesn't. 
There is no distinction. When we look at the word holiness, that's what it means. Set apart, cut, set apart, and distinct. I'll give you an example. And I, and I questioned whether giving this example because I'm not exactly the most well-read when it comes to the, the, the arena of politics. And already that might uh, make some uncomfortable. Like, oh, he's headed toward the political arena. Kind of. Here's what I want you to, to know. In 2016, over 80% of evangelicals voted for a presidential candidate. Right? Cool. Nobody's getting mad yet. Right. Good. 80% of evangelicals voted for a presidential candidate. In an article published by Desiring God, they went on to describe what people believe an evangelical is. Now, in its origin, an evangelical was an individual that carried the good news of the gospel and that heralded that good news of the gospel, but it doesn't necessarily mean that today. Today, an evangelical is someone who would align, and they would argue, desiring God, is someone who would align or agree with good values or good family values, moral ethics, uh, and being a good person. The question is, the question that I started thinking through within this article and another one published by Pew Research was that there were people within that 80% that went on to be described and identified as, quote, non-church-going evangelicals. In other words, people who do not know Jesus, people who are unregenerate and do not know the saving grace of Jesus and have no heart transformation are associating themselves as evangelicals. There is no distinction in their voting. You couldn't tell who was the Christian and who wasn't the Christian. When we begin to compromise the gospel, we lose our distinction. We lose not just our witness, but our identity. We lose the gospel, the one that preaches that God entered into human history as the man Jesus Christ lived among us and died for us, extending and freely offering a grace that you and I cannot offer. For the religious sinner that is blended into the everyday, you cannot see a distinction. The church does not need religious sinners void of Christ, but repentant sinners found in Christ. It begins with distinction. That is, if you belong to Christ, not only have you been bought with a price, but you have been called to holiness. Distinction set apart to stand upon the conviction brought on by the truth of God that has been revealed to you in Christ. I see so many Christians talking about what they are against, but I see not very many Christians preaching the gospel because they don't want to offend people. The gospel is an offense. It is calling people to repentance on the account of them being a sinner in need of a Savior who gives grace. 
It begins with distinction, and then it leads to doctrine. Theology matters. We've been talking about that all year, and in particular in this series. And it's not just Bible reading. It's as the psalmist writes, a tree planted near a stream of water. Our spiritual health is directly sourced from the word of God. Our doctrine leads to devotion, and it's not simply behaving differently. It is that you have been transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit, that you are a new creation. And when you fail, you are covered by the grace of God in Christ for you. The Apostle Peter says it this way, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If this season serves as an opportunity for anything, then it is one where we boldly and humbly repent of loving ourselves. Where we repent of treating ourselves and start denying ourselves. It is one where the distinction we walk in isn't one where we are better than anyone else. It is one where we are repentant. So Christian, if you are walking in unrepentant sin, if you are walking in pride and arrogance, I want you to know that we give the Pharisees a hard time But Jesus also preaches repentance to the Pharisees. So Christian, if you are walking in unrepentance and if you're walking in arrogance, if you are walking by compromising the gospel in your life, not the person next to you, not the person that you're thinking of, you. If you are compromising the gospel, then repent. Repent of your sins so that you would be reminded of the forgiveness that you have in Christ. Surrender yourself to the Lordship of Jesus so that you would be transformed by the Spirit again and again. And if you don't know Jesus, I want you to know a couple of things. Number one, the perfect church does not exist. She does not exist. She won't. And so if that's what you've looked for, and if you've had bad experiences, I'm very, very sorry. And more than the church, I want you to know Jesus. Jesus is the one that is ready to pardon your sin if you repent and believe in him as Lord. Like, that is a desire of Jesus. That is part of the heart of Jesus. That as sinners come before him to repent, he is willing and ready to pardon them, to give them forgiveness, to cover them in his grace, and to transform them with the Holy Spirit. Church, we do not need religious sinners void of Christ. However, we need repentant sinners found in Christ. Let's pray.
God, as we close our time, <clears throat> as we close our time, Lord, when we uh, hear about religious sinners and even repentant sinners, um, it could be very easy, it probably is very easy for us to look at a religious sinner, the characteristics of a religious sinner, and very quickly associate ourselves with those characteristics. Because the truth is, none of us here are immune to any of those things. None of us are immune to loving ourselves or becoming narcissistic or greedy or simply loving pleasure. None of us are immune from denying your power. And so, God, this morning, here's what I ask. That through your word, you would pierce our hearts. That in this moment of prayer, as we respond to you in prayer, that you would pierce our hearts with the word that we just read so that we would be reminded of the grace that you give us in Christ or so that our hearts would be renewed. Lord, this is not accomplished by our strength, but by your spirit. And so God, we submit ourselves to you. God, would you forgive us of our arrogance, of our recklessness? Would you forgive us for being narcissistic, and greedy. Would you forgive us for loving pleasure more than we love you as if our life in Christ is not complete? God, none of us are immune to compromising the gospel. And so through your spirit, would you preach that gospel to us right now so that we would come before you in confession and repentance as sinners in need of a Savior who gives a beautiful grace that we cannot earn. God, would you transform us, not just to be better, but so that we would be more like Jesus. God, in this time of prayer, may you meet us where we are with the grace that you so freely give. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.